Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. We have Lawrence Golub. He is the chief executive of Golub Capital, assets under management, about $20 billion. They're based in Chicago, but he joins us here in our New York studio. Lawrence, thanks very much for being here. Much appreciated. Tell people about your focus. And the reason I want to do this quickly is because I want to get to this idea of revenue in the mid-market. You've done some surveys. Revenue in the U.S. middle market grew 8.5% during the first two months of Q1. We're a, we're a non-bank lending business. We lend to medium-sized companies in the United States, typically with revenue between about $50 million and $500 million. So these are businesses that are smaller than typical public companies. As a lender, we have loans outstanding to about 200 companies, and we're monitoring, receiving their financial information on a monthly basis. The Gallup Capital Middle Market Report focuses on an early look at actual revenue and profit from the first two months of each calendar quarter. So the growth in revenue of about 8.5% that you referred to is what we've seen in the portfolio for January and February. You know, uh, just to sort of give more, uh, to flesh that out, Golub oversees about $20 billion in assets and is one of the best known names in the middle market area. Uh, and I, I have to say, I was looking through your report and I was struck not just by the increase in revenues, but by the d- massive dispersion of EBITDA, of earnings uh Depending on the sector, I mean, you have consumer uh, companies that are seeing negative earnings, a decline in earnings, whereas you see technology uh, companies seeing an increase of more than 11% in earnings. So can you explain, I mean, have you ever seen such dispersion before in your life? This dispersion is very wide, and it's really a story of an ability to control costs and an ability to have operating leverage as volume goes up or down. In the tech sector, and our tech sector is primarily business-to-business software, there's been tremendous investment for a long time. The business buyers and invest the, the purchasers of the software are eager to get the efficiency gains that, that come from it. And that sector is just really knocking the cover off the ball. Contrast that with, say, healthcare, where for the third quarter in a row, we've seen reasonably good revenue growth, but the typical companies in healthcare have not been able to control their costs. So, so in other words, when you see revenue growth but negative EBITDA, negative earnings, that's the reason why, because of costs. I, that that's the most frequent reason why. And in the case of healthcare, it's typically labor costs. Uh, you know, we think about labor costs in terms of just manufacturing wages, but in fact, skilled wages for certain sectors are going up. And we're still seeing some of the impact of the Affordable Care Act, increased demand for health care services, which is driving costs up. Also, many of the health care service providers you know, are, are really demonstrating they're not as good as some other industries at developing the operating efficiencies so far. Something I hope we'll see change over time. I want to just ask you about an issue that we've been talking about having to do with wage increases and productivity, because when we received the payroll report last week, we saw an increase, I think it was about 2.7% year over year in wage in wages. And that ends up being tied to productivity. And what the question that I ask is companies choosing people over machines, because we hear a lot about robots and artificial intelligence in the companies that you deal with. Are they looking to replace people? Absolutely. When, when we talk about business-to-business software, 
you know, that that really is about getting more out of the people you have, delivering more services without adding people, and increasing your impact. It's one of the drivers of that sector. Let's look within the consumer products industry at restaurants, a subsector which has been weak, had been weak for several quarters. This quarter, restaurants have actually come back some and have some margin expansion because they've had to deal with labor efficiency. It's not necessarily firing people. It's better scheduling. There are all, all aspects of getting more productivity out, but with increasing minimum wages, with the regulatory costs, healthcare costs, high labor content businesses have to react. That's one of the reasons I think we've seen 31,000 lost jobs in the retail sector. Well, talking about retail, I just want to go back to the consumer decline in earnings, uh, this sort of negative 8.5% decline in EBITDA among consumer companies that you uh, canvassed. I'm wondering, does this signal to you broader weakness among the consumer that might not be reflected in current economic data? It, potentially. It's certainly not good news. Uh, when when you look at projections for S&P 500 EPS up 9%, there's certainly some sectors that are going to be very strong this quarter, like energy, metals, and mining. But the consumer sector, this, the, this number is somewhat worrisome. Have you reduced your consumer exposure in your portfolio? Uh, no. We, we're very focused in our portfolio on non-retail businesses. Uh, so if you, if you looked at a portfolio that included retail, the numbers might even be more significant than this. And you also provide financing for deals that are perhaps done by private equity firms or other non-bank financial companies. Yes. I, uh, the majority of our borrowers are controlled by private equity firms. And are you seeing that they are getting the exit valuations that they want from their deals? Well, the deal environment has slowed down a lot in the past several months. The combination of uh, some, some headwinds on the consumer side, uncertainty about the deductibility of interest, owners holding off on selling because they're hoping capital gains rates will go down, the possible border adjustment tax, which very few people think will pass but everyone worries about, has all led to really a decline in the pace of transactions. The, the Panera-style sales. And, and Panera is a great company. The same store sales this past quarter are up 5%, which is industry leading. But, but that sort of multiple is pretty unusual right now. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly fascinating report. Lawrence Golub is chief executive officer of Golub Capital, which oversees about $20 billion and is based in Chicago, Illinois. He was highlighting his latest Golub Capital middle market report, talking about the broad dispersion in earnings depending on the sector of smaller companies. Well, this deal uh, was heralded last year as what was going to become the biggest energy infrastructure uh, system and distribution provider in North America. Enbridge uh, bought uh, Spectra Energy for $37 billion. And here to talk about that deal, which recently was completed, is John Whelan, Chief Financial Officer of Enbridge, uh, which is based in Calgary in Canada. John, congratulations on completing this deal. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about what Enbridge stands to gain from this acquisition. Well, thank you very much, Lisa. Um, 
Really, Enbridge, uh, it really is an opportunity to extend and diversify our growth program at the end of the day. Uh, we have a value proposition that focuses on uh, uh, low-risk, reliable income generated from energy infrastructure assets, buying a platform, the premier gas distribution and transmission platform uh, in the U.S. Uh, really gives us a big opportunity to extend and diversify uh, off of that off of that platform. So we're uh, we're now operating in 40 states, uh, seven provinces in Canada. So uh, we're truly a continental player. Uh, John, if you could speak to the issue of environmental responsibility, how would you address the concerns that have been brought about not only for Enbridge but also for the industry of transporting uh, oil and natural gas? Right. Well, I think that is an issue for the industry as a whole, uh, and it's become a bit of a focal point. But quite frankly, I think there's never been a greater focus on uh, operational reliability, operational integrity of our systems going forward. Um, operations and safety are the number one priority of our company, as it is many companies in our industry uh, at the end of the day. And we work very hard uh, to ensure uh, that all of our stakeholders, our customers, the communities along our rights of way and so on, understand the steps that we take uh, to uh, make the pipes operate reliably and safely. Can you talk a little bit, John, about the change in the U.S. administration and how that might affect the U.S. bringing in Canadian oil or, or vice versa, frankly? Yeah, well, I, th I think generally the climate for energy would appear to be more positive at the moment. Well, uh, in the U.S., if the yeah. U.S. is exporting it, not the other way around. Not necessarily, although I think, uh, you know, there's a tremendous benefit that uh, both countries get from an integrated energy market. Uh, and we find that uh, really uh, huge cross-border trade exists in energy, not just southbound from Canada into the U.S., but also from the U.S. up in Canada, electricity, natural gas, and so on. And for many, many years, uh, uh, both countries, quite frankly, have benefited uh, hugely from that. Uh, so our initial conversations with administration in the U.S. and others would tend to make us think that everybody does understand that. But, of course, we do have to see how uh, rules around uh, uh, cross-border uh, taxation and so on play out. John, many people are familiar with Keystone XL. They might not be familiar with GXL. Tell us about Enbridge's GXL, what it plans to do, and maybe you can just allude to some of the challenges that you've had putting this together. Well, I, I think you're probably referring to a whole series of low-cost capacity expansions that we have been looking to build on our system. Enbridge has uh, expanded the system very significantly over the last number of years. We're continuing to do that. Uh, we have... Uh, this is all around the Great Lakes area. It also includes uh, expansion to the network in Minnesota, for example. Yeah, right. We've got a large project, our Line 3 replacement project, that is currently going through the approval process. So it's completely approved now in Canada and really completely approved in, in, in the U.S. with the exception of uh, Minnesota, where we are working with the Public Utilities Commission there. Uh, and that process is taking us a little longer than we expected. However, our environmental impact statement process is completed. Uh, rather not completed, I shouldn't say that. It's been fully scoped and is in the process of being completed. And so we think uh, there's some clarity now with respect to the regulatory uh, direction and the regulatory process there, and we're moving that project along. 
John, uh, Enbridge also has a big renewable business, including wind farms in Texas and off the East Coast in North Carolina. Have you uh, projected a slower pace of growth in some of those renewable industries, given the more favorable climate for fossil fuels? Um, it really depends on jurisdictions. I think different jurisdictions have different renewable portfolio standards in terms of what they're trying to achieve. So there are some places where I know uh, we continue to plow forward um, on a, a number of different projects, both here in the U.S. and in Canada and also in Europe right now, where there's a significant focus on the development of renewal, renewable energy. So it really is more of a, a, a local consideration primarily for us in terms of where the activity is. Can you speak to the issue once again, just of pipeline safety? Because as you build out this network, there's been a lot of criticism about spills and potential harm to the environment from this pipeline extension. What are you doing differently now than you did, let's say, 10 or 15 years ago? Yeah. Well, we have put a tremendous amount of uh, uh, both time, effort, and, and money into uh, improving and enhancing the integrity of our overall systems. Old pipe is being replaced by new pipe. That's what that major project uh, going through Minnesota is really all about. And we've been working to... Um, if you will, enhance the operational, uh, the operational integrity of the overall system. Safety has always been, but never more than now, uh, the number one priority for uh, our, our operating leaders. All right. I want to thank you very much for joining us. John Whelan is the chief financial officer of Enbridge. Promise and the potential products from biotechnology investments. Here to tell us more is Eli Kasdan. He's a managing partner of Kasdan Capital. He joins us in the studio. Eli, thanks for coming in today. Maybe you could just give people a little quick background of Kasdan Capital, how you came to the business, and then the focus that you're taking. Sure. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Um, so I launched uh, Kasdan Capital in 2012. We're a life science technology investment firm. Um, we invest primarily in publicly traded companies, but when we can't find what we want in the public markets, we'll invest in uh, privates. That said, not a venture capitalist by training or disposition, and so we hope never to do it. We've done it now 21 times. And the fund is organized all around this broad identity that the cost curves for analyzing and manipulating molecular biology, DNA specifically, have come down dramatically over the last decade, particularly fast in the last five years. For reference, the Human Genome Project, which cost about $3 billion and took 13 years to do, um, can now be done in a day for $1,000. Well, so just uh, from the 30,000 views still, I'm curious how your firm deals with some of the volatility that we've seen in biopharmaceutical uh, company shares just based on, I mean, tweets and, and off-the-cuff commentary by politicians. I mean, how do you capture value at a time when kind of research could be thrown out the window by, by you know, a press release or Yeah, we certainly don't try to, to manage volatility. Um, you can't, right? You know, if, if Hillary can tweet and, and crush the, the market 25 percent, um, there's no way to sort of manage through that except to know what you own, Buy more when it's when it's lower, um, and sort of hold on. Um, and uh, the 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 fundamental reality, though, is that these companies, those that are successful, build products that change people's lives, um, and that has value. And so, 
Uh, you just need a time frame to ride out through that volatility. Eli, uh, one of the things I note about your process is that you hold information sessions, lunches, basically, in which you invite your investors to come in and meet with the actual chief executives of some of the companies that you're invested in. One example is Sage Therapeutics. And I'm wondering if you could use that example to tell us what does Sage do? How did you come to find them? And why you do that? Why do you bring the investors literally into the business and say, here, meet directly with the company? Yeah, no, it's, um, I think the, the reason we do it, and I'll, and I'll start there, is that um, largely uh, our investor base are successful uh, investors in their own right, running large private equity funds, hedge funds, not typically in the healthcare space. And and what we find is they think that the life sciences is, is sort of pixie dust, you know, that you sort of get lucky, you find some kind of insight in a lab, and, and if you're lucky, 10% uh, of the time it turns into something and that's worth it. Um, our belief is that actually um, it's all the execution between the lab and commercial product done by human beings, real people, that um, determine success. And so what we try to do is 25% of our effort is find good science and then 75% confirm that the people are really good that can actually deliver. Um, so And so in that example, we like to bring in these CEOs who we think are very impressive and have built impressive firms and let our investors have at them and sort of see, wow, these are really, uh, these are real businessmen. Um, and I would just note that the, you know, if you take Gilead, Genzyme, Genentech, Biogenidec, uh, and Celgene, 75% uh, of their revenue comes from uh, assets they went out and acquired and brought in which means their internal R&D didn't deliver, but their business acumen uh, did. And so that's what we're trying to find, businessmen like that or people. I know that you can't wager around policy. It's a very tricky and uh, potentially unsatisfying area to go at. Uh, and yet there are some pretty sig significant changes that could be made, whether it's uh, forcing U.S. pharmaceutical companies to sell biosimilars in the U.S., uh, you know, other efforts to reduce drug prices. How are you sort of positioned around that and how do you factor in some of the drug pricing issues? Yeah, and listen, I think um, drug pricing is a, is a really... Uh, challenging issue. You know, historically, the mechanism of going from a branded product to a generic product, uh, patent lives and the expiration of those, those patents, has been a really effective way to keep drug prices in check. In the last couple of years, um, due, to, due to several factors, some of them actually regulatory, um, that transmission mechanism has broken down. Fewer generic uh, uh, applications being approved, uh, fewer manufacturers. And so there's been a lack of competition in the generics market, which has allowed generic pricing to go up and sort of broken that transmission mechanism. So one thing is you got to fix that. The second thing is uh, we invest in companies that are developing drugs where the alternative is uh, usually death. And so our belief is that if you can develop a novel therapy that uh, uh, has a huge impact on a, a group of patients, that's worth something. Um, and so we don't try to look to invest in marginal products or Me Too sort of follow-ons. We're really looking to invest in true innovation and avoid uh, what we call manipulators, people taking advantage of inefficiencies to, to make margin. I want to just uh, tie you back to Sage Therapeutics, yes. just yes. as an example, because yeah. Jeff Jonas, the, uh, the chief executive of the company, uh, had many other roles previous to being the chief executive of, of Sage. This is a company that's working on uh, central nervous system uh, drugs. How did you come to connect 
with Jeff Jonas and Sage? Um, you know, we're looking for uh, great companies, as I said, great managers pursuing novel biology and then developing it in a process that yields very early results of uh, whether a go, no go decision. The, the challenge for developing drugs is that uh, historically, uh, the, 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 re the outcome has been all focused on the phase three where it's the most expensive component and you're sort of playing roulette until you get there. Um, Jeff has, has stepped into Sage, which has some amazing science around the CNS, a uh, particular sort of uh, receptor thesis, and then has developed very uh, specific uh, small molecules to target it, and then has a very novel way to get early proof of principle so that when you go into a phase one, two, phase, phase two, three, you, you have a lot of confidence and you get a very definitive result. What are the, the top picks that you would say are undervalued right now? Oh gosh, um, I don't know. I, every you know everything in our portfolio. No, um, <laughs> everything uh, we own right now. Everything it's we own is skyrocketing. And I think everyone should. Buy. No, um, <laughs> listen. We think about the unit, the, the the healthcare continuum, moving from life science tools to applications of those tools in diagnostics, to application of those diagnostics into drug development, and ultimately leading into industrial biotech. Our our feeling on the diagnostic space is this is a a relatively when we when we started investing in the diagnostic space reimbursement was terrible it's now become horrendous uh, but one company is surviving uh, foundation medicine because they have the support of Roche um, and so we think that that company in cancer ther uh, diagnostics has a lot of potential name Foundation Medicine. Foundation Medicine. F ticker FMI. Sorry. Eli Kasdan, thank you so much for joining us. Eli Kasdan is managing partner of Kasdan Capital, focusing on the biotech sector, drug pricing, everything under the biopharmaceutical sun. Now let's turn our attention to uh, some business news and bonds and uh, bring in Brian Chapata because Brian has written a story that I think is worth everybody paying attention to. This has to do with foreign investors not necessarily loving U.S. Treasuries as much as they have in the past, and that could be a potential problem. Let's find out more. Brian, thanks very much for coming in and your patience. Tell us about this uh, idea that You've got negative, or you had negative yielding sovereign debt, places like Germany, for example, but that's now positive yielding debt. And as a result, the lure of U.S. Treasuries might not be so intense. Right, exactly. Um, there are still negative yielding bonds out there, but the stack has gone down by about $3 trillion worth. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, you have these investors that were looking at negative yielding bonds, which you know, even just a few years ago uh, was borderline absurd. I mean, why would you pay for the privilege of owning uh, a security? Um, all of a sudden- Because the government told you to in one way or another. You got to hold something very secure if you're a bank. Right, because of the central banks. But um, essentially, now what's happening is more of those are turning into positive yields. And so all that money that was flooding into U.S. Treasuries, because it was basically the only positive yielding option available, uh, all of a sudden, you know, maybe those baskets are full and they say, you know, maybe now is the time to to buy some buns or buy some uh, French debt, for example. Yeah, Brian, a really fascinating story. You highlight how foreigners currently own 43% of the nearly $14 trillion of U.S. Treasuries outstanding. So this is 
is why uh, this dynamic is so important. Have we already seen signs of foreigners backing away from the U.S. market to go into boons or uh, yeah, denominated bonds? Yeah, we've definitely seen uh, some of that, uh, especially uh, the latest Japan data uh, showed that there was another month of net selling uh, in February. So that's now four straight months, uh, basically ever since November when you know the losses were really severe on on treasuries with the Trump win and the reflation bets. Um, so there has been some selling, and the question going forward is going to be: Is that going to flip eventually? You know, what's going to be that trigger, or is the prospect of you know uh, higher rates everywhere going to you know scare them off still? Well, and what differential will people tolerate? I mean, I'm looking at, at a 30-year yield that still is relatively low, has not increased substantially this year. So you have to wonder, you know, where are we seeing this uh, sort of around the edges departure by foreign investors? Yeah, I mean, definitely yields are still very low by by all metrics. And I think the question going forward is going to be, you know, you talk about differentials. I mean, where is you know, are yields really going to uh, increase the most? I mean, most people are still calling for higher yields. Uh, you look at French bonds, for example, and you've seen those really uh, yields climb on you know geopolitical uh, election risks, things like that. Um, but I mean, people are trying to figure out exactly where to go. I mean, I was talking about the Japanese data, and they were huge sellers of, of French bonds lately. Uh, you know, they don't like losses, and you know, no one in bonds do. I mean, I think uh, Kathy Jones from Charles Schwab uh, summed it up greatly that uh, it's the bastion of uh, skepticism, and you know, they don't like to look at losses. So, where uh, we get some positive return is going to be the big question uh, in the months ahead. Well, you still got a lot of bids underneath the U.S. Treasury market because I'm looking right now at the 30-year. It stands at 2.98%. We are up 15, 30 seconds. So there's a bid throughout the, uh, the the yield curve all the way down to the uh, the six-month bill. Yep, and we got the three-year auction coming up uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern. So that's going to be another uh, sign of uh, whether there's really demand out there for uh, for U.S. Treasuries going forward. Brian Chapata, thank you so much for joining us. Truly a fascinating story, an important topic uh, to look at, important the foreign dynamic with respect to the U.S. Treasury market, how much it has fueled gains in this market, and how much it could uh, end up causing some of the losses if there is some kind of exodus. Brian Chapata is U.S. Treasury reporter for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.